0: Hello, this is William Fink and this is Christogenea Internet Radio. This evening, it is Friday, January 7th, 2022, and we are going to present Treasure in Earthen Vessels, a review of a sermon by Wesley Swift. My point in doing this this evening has several prongs. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh the God of Israel. It is relatively easy for a Christian to maintain his faith and to profess his beliefs so long as he enjoys worldly comforts and so long as his faith is never really tried. But once some trial does come along there is a very real danger that a man may forsake his beliefs and run off into some heresy, thereby being tried all the more, and in the long run, exposing himself to an even much greater degree of suffering and anguish. This year we have had several friends who have lost loved ones, and we have also lost several friends. We will miss them, but we have comfort, in the fact that they are not truly lost. As Christians, we have an assurance. And we, of all others, should know with confidence that all of our true friends are alive in Christ, that if we are in him, we shall all one day be reunited. As Paul of Tarsus wrote in Romans chapter 6, For if we had been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. However, one event troubles us greatly, that one dear friend has fallen off in despair at the sudden and unexpected loss of a loved one, and had also questioned why he suffered such a trial in spite of his service to our Christian identity community. So we are afraid that, in his pursuit of the unknowable, because my own answers to him did not seem to satisfy his demands for knowledge, that he has either abandoned his faith completely or has gone off into some heresy, which is just heartbreaking to us. Therefore, while we share the grief of our friend, we also grieve for him, Because we are afraid that we have lost him. More importantly, we are afraid that he has turned his back on God himself. He could turn his back on us, but if he turns his back on God, that really is something to lament. Peter himself had warned of the trials which we would face in spite of our faith in chapter 4 of his first epistle. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy." we cannot let trial stand in the way of our faith. Or perhaps that is only an indication that our faith was never assured in the first place. Rather, tribulation should temper us as it gives us an opportunity to strengthen our faith. For that, Paul had written in Romans chapter 5 that therefore being justified by faith We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith, into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, And hope makes us not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, or Spirit, which is given unto us. Peter had spoken further of the trials which Christians would suffer in chapter 1 of his first epistle assuring his readers that they had a certain hope in being resurrected, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and it fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God, through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through fold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. I'm citing the King James Version almost exclusively for this particular presentation. It's a criticism of Swift, so I will cite the version that he had used, unless there's serious reason for departure. That being said, that we have that certain hope, that incorruptible and undefiled inheritance, an inheritance which cannot be defiled. Neither can we let any knowledge or lack of knowledge disrupt our faith the assurances which we have been given. None of us can know everything, regardless of how studied we may be. For this Paul spoke in chapter 8 of his first epistle to the Corinthians, where, in relation to idolatry in the world, he said, Now is touching things offered unto idols. We know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up but charity edifieth. Knowledge inflates one's ego, but charity, which is love for one's brother, helps us to edify ourselves and our brethren, our community, if you will. And if any man may think that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man loves God, the same is known of him. That's what's important, that God knows you. Later, in chapter 13 of that same epistle, Paul attested that for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, even Paul professing that he didn't know everything, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now, abide in faith, hope, and charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. You get of all the faith and hope in the world if you don't love your brother. You have problems. And the faith and the hope won't do you much good. When we lose a loved one, it is natural for us to be bereaved. And it is natural for us to be concerned about them. However, all we can know with certainty is that Yahweh, the God of the prophets, those same prophets who told us long beforehand so many things which we would suffer, also gave us assurances along with those warnings, and we must have hope in the assurances, if the... If the warnings materialized in history, if the warnings came to fruition, then the assurances certainly will also come to fruition. For that, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15, that for whatsoever things were written aforetime, were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope otherwise there is no hope but to know precisely where our deceased loved ones are at this moment or what they are doing or whether or not they can see us or whether they may interact with us That is not for us to know. Saul, the first king of Israel, had resorted to a necromancer only to learn of his own destruction. And the children of Israel were rightly forbidden to resort to necromancers and sorcerers. The law explicitly forbids such consultants. In a completely unrelated manner, a friend in the Christagenia chat room, a young man in Germany, had recently answered this same dilemma in an unrelated conversation, which he had had with another man. So I will take the liberty of quoting him and giving him the credit because it also describes my own observations. So he wrote, and he described it very well and very succinctly in my opinion. It was very timely as I was preparing these notes. So he wrote, all those questions are not able to be answered at this point in time. Any conclusion you'll come to will be a hunch at best. So you should do yourself the favor and stop digging into those things. It can lead you into madness, in the sense of false doctrine, easily, if you focus too much on unknowable things. I've seen this happen to people I know, getting into heresy because they dug into unknowable matters too deeply, in the process, throwing out established knowledge and sound doctrine. The mysteries aren't worth the price. And of course I also believe that is true. That seeking to commune with those who have passed one opens the door of exploitation to devils. In our relatively recent commentary on John chapter 16, where Christ had told his disciples that yet I did not tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you, I made the following remarks, where it also becomes evident that what I said is apparent in several places in John's epistle, and it was also repeated later in the commentary at a later point in the Gospel of John as we have recently discussed in this commentary. The apostles did not know everything they would ultimately need to know even after having spent three and a half years in the company of Yahshua Christ himself. Rather, he had informed them that even after his departure, they would receive an ongoing education and revelation through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now here, once again, Christ tells them that they still have things to know, that there were things he had not yet told them because, as he says, I was with you. Later in the chapter, he once again tells them that they shall be led to truth by the Holy Spirit. Having the prescience of God, while there were many things that he taught them, he knew that no harm would come to them so long as he was with them but now as he is about to be taken from them he wants them to be aware of the dangers that they must also face. With this we realize that even God himself dispenses information on a need-to-know basis. Therefore even if some of us may have had experiences that give us an even greater assurance we should not really expect to convince our brethren of anything based on our own personal experiences. There are six million liars and demons who have tried to do that repeatedly throughout history and the world follows after them. But in truth we can only really know what we have in our scriptures because we know that we can rely on our God. If Paul of Tarsus explained as he had in 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 that to be absent from the body is to be present with Yahshua Christ then we have an assurance that in death we shall pass on into the presence of our God. But how can a man add anything more to that assurance. On what basis may I explain the substance of that presence, not ever having seen or experienced it for myself, and not having it explained any further in Scripture? There Paul had written, That we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body. According to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. So for that same reason, we also should pray that our own faith does not falter in spite of our trials. Ostensibly, once we survive the judgment seat of Christ, we shall have a share in the condemnation of the enemies of our God. As Solomon wrote in Wisdom chapter 4, that the righteous that is dead shall condemn the ungodly which are living. And Paul had said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that Christians should be in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. But in this life, all we can really be assured of is that if we are children, if we are of the children of Adam, we do have a treasure in these earthen vessels which we call our bodies. For that reason, Solomon had written in chapter 2 of Wisdom that God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Now with that, I am going to present and critique a sermon by Wesley Swift on that same subject, and with that same title, Treasure in Earthen Vessels. This will actually, for the most part, take us off our theme, but it does stay on track in various places. This sermon is dated April 26th, 1970. And in the collection of Wesley Swift sermons, which we had from his wife Lorraine, which we had received through a friend, a mutual friend from his wife Lorraine, there were only three dated later than this one, in May and June of that year. Swift himself had passed on not even six months later, on October 8th, 1970. So this is Treasures in Earthen Vessels by Dr. Wesley Swift, and we will add plenty of our own notes and criticisms. With this sermon, we do not have the luxury of having been able to locate a recording, so we are at the sole mercy of the transcriber who may have been Ella Rose Mast. I'm not entirely certain. Here I will probably make new paragraph breaks to facilitate the timeliness of my own comments, and I may also adjust some punctuation, especially the many ellipses, these little three-dot sequences that were in the original which weren't always necessary, but I don't know what the transcriber was hearing. I can't hear it. I actually looked around to see if there was an recording, a recording of the sermon, and I can't find one, even though I was informed that all of these sermons came from recordings. I might have a thousand documents posted on the Wesley Swift archive at Christogenia. I don't know how many there are, I'm sort of guessing, but it's a lot more than the perhaps 326 or 28 recordings that we have posted there. Swift opens the sermon rather abruptly by asking, Do we have treasures in earthen vessels? Well, if Paul says we do, then we certainly do, and Solomon certainly agrees, but that's another story. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, chapter 4, verse 7, And God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We can't affect our own salvation. If we do not have his spirit in us, then we don't have any salvation. It's that simple. The citation is actually from verses 6 and 7. Paul went on to write immediately after that, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. On the surface, it may seem that this only fits the Christian era and the subsequent persecution of Christians. I should say the early Christian era. But that is not necessarily the case. For this, Paul had explained in Romans chapter 8, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God, the children of Yahweh, of course. Referring to the creature here, Paul was referring to the entire Adamic creation, the race of Adam, As the context of the subsequent verses of that chapter reveals, Christ having been the lamb slain from the foundation of the world and the entire Adamic creation having been subjected to death in the sin of their first father. We see that this subjection was indeed for Christ as Paul had asserted in second Corinthians chapter four, which we had just read. In other words, the scope is applicable to all of history and not merely to the persecutions of Christians in the early Christian era. Now we have criticized Wesley Swift here in the past for his forays into esoteric so-called mysteries. I don't really consider them mysteries. I really consider most of them bullshit, and bullshit is not mysteries. But he called them mysteries. We've criticized him for his references to the demonic Kabbalah and his adoption of New Age concepts and language. But that does not mean he was wrong, or at least always wrong, in his interpretations of Scripture. Here, and on this topic in general, I believe he did quite well, except perhaps for following New Age descriptions of the Spirit which Yahweh had instilled within the Adamic man, where he said, and of course there will be other problems that we will illustrate in this sermon, he said, this means that the eternal Yahweh has shined in your heart and places upon your countenance an area of aura, which is awfully strange language to me. Now, perhaps we can dismiss this as Swift's own interpretation of the Adamic spirit made in 1960s California terms. In other words, hippie New Age hogwash. But then he does better where he continues. He says, God has ordained and predestined that you are going to conform to his own image, that the light and the glory of the Most High God is going to be seen upon your race and upon your household. And we have this treasure in earthen vessels, which makes it a most unique situation Because when we talk about this light, we are talking about the light of life. We are talking about the vitality of God's own light and his own life as he transfers it unto the household of his sons and daughters. The Apostle Paul tells us that his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Without that Adamic spirit, which is what Solomon considered to be the image of God, there is no life. And once the body is dead, there is no further existence. So Paul also wrote in Romans chapter 8, the chapter to which Swift has just alluded, that so, then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, even if we have his spirit we still sin. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be, that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. None of us can know this for certain. Until we get there. And we should not be in a hurry to arrive. Of course we could have confidence. But even that confidence. Even Paul did not claim. That he was assured. That he would get there. If we never get there. That too. Is the will of God. And at that point. It does not really matter any further. Continuing with Swift. Now, there is no question about the pattern of God's household and his children. There is no question about the fact that the Adamic race is the household of the Most High God. But when God begat Adam in his own image, and separated Eve from Adam so that they might be of one flesh, They were still his offspring, and this was his household. Spirit of his spirit, and life of his life. They were different from the Enosh, or the other people of the earth. For they were Adamites, they were children of the Most High. Now, Swift did well here, except for his understanding of the term Enosh. There are many places in Genesis and elsewhere where men of the Adamic race, even men of Israel, are called Enosh because the term refers to the mortal man and not any particular race. It can be used to describe any race. Here I will give a specific example. In Numbers chapter 1, we read where Yahweh speaks to Moses, commanding him to have Aaron count the men of Israel who can go to war, and to have the chief men of each tribe assist him in that endeavor. So he says, And with you there shall be a man of every tribe, every one head of the house of his fathers. And these are the names of the men that shall stand with you. Of the tribe of Reuben, Eliezer, the son of Shadur, of Simeon, Shalumiel, the son of Zereshadeh, of Judah, Nashon, the son of Amidadab, of Issachar, Nathanael, the son of Zuar, of Zebulun, Eliad, the son of Helon, of the children of Joseph, of Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud, of Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur. Of Benjamin, Abidon, the son of Gideoni. Of Dan, Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai. Of Asher, Pagiel, the son of Akron, Of Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Duel. Of Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enon. These were the renowned of the congregation. Princes of the tribes of their fathers heads of thousands in Israel. And Moses and Aaron took these men, which are expressed by their names. These men were Israelites, princes of the children of Israel. They were called to be Adamites above all other Adamites. But in both cases of the word men in this passage, In verses 5 and 17 we see the Hebrew word Enosh where it is used to describe the chief men of each of the tribes of Israel. So it should be clear from this and a multitude of other examples that Wesley Swift was wrong about the meaning of the term. It was not a technical term for other races. The word Enosh is not a term describing any race or type of man. It only describes a generic man in his mortal state. So all men, including Adam, are in that sense Enosh. But Adam as man Refers only to his own particular race, and no other race can wear the name Adam. One of the biggest sins in history is that the Bibles, the Bible translations, even the Septuagint, did not distinguish between those two words. So we are brought up under the mistaken belief that there was only one race of man, and that's simply not true. All men are Enosh, but only Adamic men are Adam. Now, Swift follows that with another error, probably more grievous. But God had placed them here, speaking about the Adamic race, But God had placed them here for the betterment of all the Enosh peoples as well. That is the hugest mistake that our Adanic race has ever made. For his kingdom is for the improvement of every structure of society. Swift is just making that part up, right? And when every knee shall bow, and every tongue proclaim that Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God, then in that day we will discover that human betterment will have been achieved all over the world. Wow. But that, my friends, does not bring you down to their level. I have news for Wesley Swift. That's exactly what it has done. Or them up to your level. In the purposes of the Most High who ordained that out of the patterns of the planes of the Spirit and out of the heavens above, he was transferring his kingdom from heaven to earth. Here we could go to great lengths to refute Wesley Swift. And while perhaps one day we shall do that again, we have already discussed many times the folly of this heresy which we call Dominion Theology. But according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, The Adamic man was placed here to have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. That word for dominion is a verb which basically means to tread down trample or subjugate. Adam was to tread down the other races, but by no means was he to better them. Every command in Scripture of the attitudes which the children of Israel should have towards other races is contrary to Swift's assertion here. Swift does better where he goes on to contrast the Adamic race to the other races, and he says, a spiritual people was this kingdom, a spiritual people begotten into the world, a twice-born generation, a twice-born people. You had been begotten by the Spirit of God in the plains of heaven as a spirit entity. You had been begotten in earth in a physical body, and thus you are twice born. What does Swift mean by that? In other sermons, sometimes Swift projected the belief, and I believe that this is actually a Mormon belief, they had it first, that the spirit of an Adamic man or woman had existed in heaven before it came to earth in a human body. To inhabit a human body, I should probably say, that would probably be more accurate. We do not believe that. Rather, Yahweh was David's God from his mother's belly, Psalm 22.10. Jacob was formed in his mother's womb, Isaiah chapter 44 verse 2. Chapter 46, verse 3, chapter 49, verse 5, and Paul explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and here I will read it from the Christogenean New Testament because the King James Version has a lie in verse 44. In this way also is the restoration of the dead, it is sown in decay, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in honor. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual. And just as it is written, the first man Adam came into a living soul the last Adam, into a life-producing spirit. But the spiritual was not first. So we see that the Mormons are wrong, and Wesley Swift is wrong, according to the Apostle Paul. I would much rather believe Paul. But the spiritual was not first, rather the natural, then the spiritual. The first man from out of earth, of soil, the second man from out of heaven, as he of soil, such as those also who are of soil, and as he in heaven, such as those also who are in heaven. Therefore, according to Paul, with the conception of an Adamic body, a spiritual body grows along with the physical, and while the physical body may develop out of earthly matter, The spiritual body is from God. Each Adamic man having both natures by reason of God's own design. So if we are of Adam, we bore the earthly nature of Adam, and we shall also bear the spiritual nature of Christ, through which is the resurrection, as Christ is God even as Swift shall do very well to announce here later on. Continuing with Swift, where he calls the other races Enosh people, we understand them to be corruptions of the creation of God, whose origin is in the branches of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But, as he continues, he says... The Enosh people are not twice born, because they were never begotten in the planes of spirit as the offspring of the Most High God. We point out to you that when it refers to the Christ, it refers to him as the second Adam, and the first Adam was the offspring of the Most High, and thus the second Adam was a life-giving spirit. So, God refers to himself as the second Adam, and I agree with that. But I believe Paul used Adam and then Christ as an analogy for the Adamic race having both a physical body and a spiritual body. Either way you want to look at that, it's fine. So, Swift goes on and says, we turn to the book of john once more in the beginning was the word and the word was god the great understanding intelligence the intelligent capacity the tremendous wisdom of the most high this is the brain intelligence of yahweh of course i interpret this in a totally different manner, not doubting the great intelligence of God but the beginning was simply the word which said let there be and that was an expression of Christ, of the presence of God, the physical presence of God in the world and that voice saying let there be is a physical expression if it's not physical, there can't be a voice There can't be a sound. Now, this is with God, a part of God, and it is God. That voice was God. It was an expression of himself. And this word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that is Christ. In other words, God became embodied in human form in his messiahship and dwelt among us and all things were made by him without him was not anything made and of course that's because he is the same God that said let there be he is that word made flesh and all things were made by him and without him was not anything made and he was before all things and by him all things exist Therefore, he who is the eternal majesty of all power, he who has the wisdom and understanding, is also the light that lights every man who comes into the world. Therefore, again, when it says that he caused the light to shine out of darkness, he caused it also to shine in your heart, to place this light and glory which shone on the face of the Christ in you, After all, as we find the entrance of God into the world, we find that he comes as Yahshua the Christ, and the word Christ is a Greek word for embodiment. And here we agree almost completely with swift. Almost. Not quite, because the word Christ is, does not mean embodiment Yahweh Christ certainly is Yahweh God Yahweh God in the flesh in the form of a man of one of his own descendants down through Adam and that is perfectly fine but the word Christus or Christ is an adjective which means anointed It comes from a Greek noun, chrisma, chrisma being ointment, something that you rub on to your body or your head. It could be myrrh, frankincense, or aloe, aloe, however you want to pronounce that, or, or one of a zillion other ointments that are in the world. Chrisma is ointment and we rub ointment or oil on someone who is being anointed. Christos means anointed. It does not mean embodiment. I don't know where Swift, which had he pulled that one out of. But he should have known better than to say that. That's okay. Now he continues, and we will have to digress again. He says, the Greek, ya, like the first syllable in Yahweh, and it's often contracted like that or, or, or shortened in that manner, even in scripture. yah Zeus has been used and other languages had their words, but we have retained the name Jesus Christ. I would say Jesus Christ is not a retention of the name, it's a corruption of Jesus Christos or Yahshua. Messiah. He goes on to say, however, the word is Joshua. Christ or Christos means the embodiment of God. And of course, it doesn't. It might mean that to someone after examining all of the prophecies that have to do with Christ, that pertain to Christ. But the word by itself does not mean that. Here, the transcriber wrote "Yah Zeus," as if combining Yahweh with Zeus to make the Greek form of the name Yahshua, which is Jesus, which we would pronounce more like Yasus or Yesus. But evidently, the intervocalic s, which is present in the Greek form of the name. In the, in the third position, right between two vowels. That's why it's called an intervocalic S. It's an S between two vowels. The intervocalic S was never pronounced like an English Z in Latin until the Middle Ages. And it was never pronounced in that manner at all in Greek. So while Swift seemed to have done that, In the transcripts of his December 29th 1966 Wednesday night Bible study which I link to here it is apparently another one of his innovations as he often sought to syncretize ancient paganism and the Bible something that the first century Jew Philo and the later Gnostics also sought to do. Therefore, he says, continuing with Swift, therefore when God came to earth, he came as Yahshua. And he's going to make another blunder here. I, Yahweh, am thy Yahshua, he said in the book of Isaiah. Or in other words, I, God, am thy Savior and am embodied and you also therefore are are embodied as his household turning to the record we find that we are told that the Christ is that the Christ in you is your hope of glory your hope of brightness of intelligence of brilliance is Christ embodied in you now the spirit of this is okay that's fine, but the letter of it is horrible. Swift has taken quite a few liberties. The word for savior in Isaiah 43 3, the passage which Swift seems to be paraphrasing, Meshiach, or Meshiach, is a savior i'm reading the transliterated hebrew that i forgot to transliterate before i thought i finished my notes but my notes are never really finished the hebrew spelling is very close to that of messiah it only has a couple of more letters than the word for messiah and it has one letter different in its ending but it has the same m s i sequence at the beginning so the word for savior in isaiah 43 3 is very close to the word for messiah which is found in the book of daniel but it does not spell yashua in fact it begins with an m It doesn't spell Yahshua, which is evidenced where we see the name Joshua in Hebrew. Everywhere you see the name Joshua in Hebrew, that is how to spell Yahshua. And it doesn't begin with an M. And it has several different characters, even though it has some similarities. The name Joshua begins with Yah. And the stem, Shua, the stem spelled shua. sometimes it's spelled differently in the Greek versions, or or I'm sorry, in the Hebrew versions of the Old Testament. Sometimes it's spelled with the letter shin or, or the s, and then the vav and the ayin, and sometimes it's spelled with simply the, the shin and then the ayin. The ayin is sort of a letter that we might want to transliterate as A, but it really shouldn't be transliterated as A by itself. Perhaps a rough-breathing H-A or something like that. We don't really know how Hebrew was pronounced, and we, sure, we certainly cannot trust the Jews to pronounce it for us. That's for certain. So... Some of the letters in the name, the Hebrew form of the name Joshua are similar with the Hebrew form of the word for Savior, but it has a different first syllable where the name of Yahweh is certainly the first syllable in the name Joshua, and the stem is nevertheless related to the concept of salvation. The second liberty Swift took here is that none of these words explicitly mean embodied. He's adding that. He's insisting on adding that meaning into words which don't have that meaning. Even if there are explicit prophecies elsewhere, that Christ would indeed be born in the form of, the, of a child. that That's indubitable. But none of these words mean embodied. Continuing with Swift. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16. We are told here that we have the mind of Christ. So what does this mean? It means that you are children of the Spirit, now embodied in the earth. And I, I don't think it means that. and We will discuss that shortly. In the 82nd Psalm, This is also the meaning, as it says, ye are gods, and all of you are children of God. This is the declaration of the scriptures. And when he says that you are going to arise and build his kingdom, then you will have the capacity to understand the wisdom of his mind. This is because he has purposed it, and he is the one who shines in your heart. He is the one who breaks through with these great powers and principles. I'm sorry. That is what the 82nd Psalm says. Ye are gods, all of you are children of the Most High, of Yahweh, without a doubt, and without a doubt, I believe that was fulfilled in the ministry of Christ himself. There are doubters concerning that passage who want to say that the word Elohim there should have been translated as judges rather than as gods. And there are places such as the book of Ruth, but there are many other places where the word Elohim was translated as gods, and it should have been translated as judges, but this is not one of them. And that is because in John chapter 8, Joshua Christ himself quoted that exact passage from the 82nd Psalm. And he used the term theoi, the plural of theos, which means gods. But in Greek, theoi cannot possibly mean judges. In Greek, the word Kritahi is Judges, a very, very different word. Go to your Greek Septuagint and look at the title to the Book of Judges, and you will see Kritahi, K-R-I-T-A-I, is the plural of the word for Judge in Greek. So, if Joshua Christ cites the 82nd Psalm, and uses that word feoi, then when we read the 82nd Psalm, we should understand that it says, ye are gods, and not ye are judges. And to hell with the Jews that try to tell us otherwise, and all of the other doubters that try to tell us otherwise. But actually, Paul insisted that we have the mind of Christ now, in the present time, by which we may understand the will of Yahweh. So referring to the natural or mortal man, Enosh, as opposed to men with the Spirit of God, he wrote in that second chapter of 1 Corinthians, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. Why? Because the spiritual man doesn't sin. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We cannot truly know the mind of Yahweh, so that we can instruct men. But, through the Gospel of Christ, we can understand the Scriptures, as Paul also explained in reference to the veil of Moses in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So now, continuing, Swift goes back to Romans chapter 8, and he says, We read in the book of Romans, in the 8th chapter, The whole creation is groaning and waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Not only does the whole creation vibrate with us, it said moan, and he changed that into the esoteric mystery word, vibrate. <laughs> that, that's Okay. <laughs> So not only does the whole creation vibrate with us, waiting, but we also are waiting, to wit, for the redemption of our body. Now here Swift wanders far astray. But we are the firstfruits of God's Spirit, who are waiting, and they, the Enosh, are the creation. Wow! Wow! Really? Did he really say that? We are the spiritual sons of the Adamic race, and we are human. There's a little hyphen in there between the syllables. And we are the children of the Most High God, and we are waiting for the redemption of our body, while they, the Enosh, or creation, are awaiting the salvation, or the light and illumination which God's grace will pour out on them. So Jesus is all about niggers. For God speaking of this matter talks about the great triumph which will come in the days of the victory of his kingdom. Wow. Okay. This is not at all what Paul or the entire Bible had ever taught. With this Swift practically ruins a fairly good sermon. Let us read a few verses from Romans chapter 8, as it is in the King James Version. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature, now that's the word kitesis, which is also creation, usually creation in scripture. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who had subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. Now that word creation is the same word, "kathesis." The King James Version tried to make it sound like a different word, evidently, but it's the same Greek word. And not only they, but ourselves also, which had the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Each occurrence, each, I'm sorry, I'm tripping over myself tonight too. It's common lately. Each occurrence of the words creature and creation in that passage are from the Greek word "kathesis," which describes the act of something created Founded or established, so a katesis is a creation, a foundation, or an establishment that's what the word means. But in this context, it does not relate to every type of creature which God created even if he had created other races. Rather, of all men, only Adam and his descendants were ever called children of God. Only the Adamic creation fell from eternal life in the Garden of Eden, and therefore only the Adamic creation awaits deliverance from the corruption into which it fell and the manifestation of the sons of God at its restoration, because only they are the sons of God. Where Paul contrasted ourselves to the whole creation, to the rest of the Adamic race, he was informing his readers that there was no difference between Christians These early Christians, those who had the first fruits of the Spirit and the rest of the Adamic race. Later in the same passage, in verse 38 of Romans chapter 8, Paul said, As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. He is still speaking of that same creature or creation. This was a quote from the Psalms of David, which applied only to the children of Israel, as opposed to other races, which is the context of the 44th Psalm. That's where the citation is from. It's from the 44th Psalm. Then, in reference to them and them alone, he wrote, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be available to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the creature, which awaits the manifestation of the sons of God, is contrasted to other aspects or creatures of God's creation, and we see that all along Paul was referring to the Adamic race alone as the particular creature of which he was speaking. None of this has anything at all to do with non Adamic races. Moreover, the word human cannot properly be divided into its components of hue and man. That is absolutely ridiculous. As our transcriber, had done, had done here, evidently be, because there was also Swift's intention. He's done this in other sermons. That is because human is not even an English or a Germanic word. Not at all. The word human is derived from the Latin word humanus, which primarily means kind compassionate, or, as we still use the term today, humane. Now, only our race can be humane. The English word man, by itself, was not even a word in Latin, although the word "manus" meant hand, and from manis we get terms such as manual, manufacture and other related terms. Now Swift confounds two scriptures which actually have the same meaning in the words of the prophets. For all Israel shall be saved as it is written and then all flesh is to be saved. He's referring to the other races. Because God is great and in the magnitude of His program, he says, I can lose nothing. Certainly, all of Israel shall be saved. Every knee shall bow, as Swift had said earlier. But every knee of Israel shall bow, and not of the other races. These two statements are found in Isaiah chapter 45 and nowhere else except where Paul cited them, cited them both in his epistle to the Romans. So we read in Isaiah first, so that we understand the context because the entire first part of the chapter is about Israel, but we read in Isaiah, but Israel shall be saved in Yahweh, with an everlasting salvation ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end and then a little further on from verse 22 look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth the children of Israel were prophesied it's right in Genesis chapter 48-49 to be scattered unto all the ends of the earth. So where it says all the ends of the earth in scripture, God is referring to the children of Israel who were scattered to all the ends of the earth. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Now this is in the context of the promise in verse 17, just a few verses before this, that Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Surely shall one say, In Yahweh have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed, and that too is a messianic prophecy of Christ. And then, in the last verse, we read, In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. So, it doesn't say all the seed of Israel and a bunch of Enosh, It doesn't say all the seed of Israel and every other race. Throughout the context of the chapter, the children of Israel alone are the subjects, and therefore those statements only apply to them, or I should say apply only to them. Nowhere in Scripture, anywhere, does it say that all flesh is to be saved. Rather, where we see the phrase all flesh, in reference to other nations in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, it is only in promises of its destruction. But in Joel we see a reference which was cited in Luke chapter 3 and Acts chapter 2. So we read in Joel chapter 2, And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am Yahweh your God, and none else. I am your God, and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. My people shall never be ashamed. I am your God, and none else. And it shall come to pass afterward, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So that must be all the flesh of Israel because he is Israel's God and none else. And now he qualifies that further. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, not the sons and daughters of Enosh or other races. Your old men shall be dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids. In those days will I pour out my spirit. And here it is evident that the reference to all flesh is a reference to all the flesh of the children of Israel, as Yahweh is their God and nobody else's. He pours out his spirit upon their sons and daughters, who alone are his servants and handmaids, as we read in the book of the prophet Isaiah. Israel is my servant. Nobody else. I cannot explain why Wesley Swift seems to have gone out of his way to twist these scriptures into some sort of universal salvation for other races. But he does better when speaking of the Adamic race. You have been begotten in the plains of the Spirit. Have been begotten of incorruptible seed, which lives and abides forever. So, can you corrupt something which is incorruptible? No, you cannot. Oh, you say, look out on our race and see. Men are doing things which are of corruption. They may do these things in their minds, in their physical bodies, but the spirit is incorruptible, it is still perfect. And thus, the mighty charge of the power of God, and the light of the mighty charge of his spirit, is one of these days going to bring our people to their senses, First, they must be brought to their knees. (laughs) There is no doubt. This is perfectly true. And this is what Yahweh had meant when he spoke of Israel and said, Every knee shall bow. Continuing with Swift, he wanders off in another direction. You say, but suppose some of them have already passed away before they came to their senses. Then Yahweh, Yahshua, will bring them back and make them do the job they volunteered to do. Because as the sons and daughters of God, the triumphant part is that God's word is true. When he says that you were begotten of incorruptible seed that lives and abides forever, then this is true. And it is the Christ in you which is your hope of glory. It is the mind of Christ in you that is the power of greatness and the magnitude of a society. Whatever that's supposed to mean. Wesley Swift had some odd ideas, to say the least. In several Bible study question and answer sessions in 1964 and 1965, he was recorded, and this can be searched in in the Swift archive at Christagenia, he was recorded as having said that he believed Asians reincarnated, but that Negroes do not, because Negroes had no spirit at all. So evidently, you might have some sort of spirit if you come from a mixture of Fallen Angel and Yellow Monkey instead of Fallen Angel and Gorilla, I guess. I don't know. Of course, for very good reasons, we believe that this is true of every other race, that they have no spirits. But the fact is that... Polytarsus had professed. I should say that they have no eternal spirits or spirits which survive after their death, because every living creature can be seen to have a quote- unquote "spirit in certain senses of the term. So let me qualify that. But the fact is that Polytarsus had professed in Hebrews chapter nine. That, in verse 27, it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. There is no basis for a belief in reincarnation anywhere in Scripture. And we didn't really volunteer to do anything ahead of time. That must be a Mormon idea as well. Swift does a little better as he continues. You look out over all the people of the world, and you think that men may be made somewhat in the same stature. There are big men and little men, brown men and yellow men and black men and other men. And you look over these people, and then someone tells you that they are all the same. The only difference is the color of their skin. That you must mix them all up, mongrelize them so they will all be the same, integrate them. But this is not the program of God's kingdom. Under the program of God's kingdom, his sons and daughters are going to take the kingdom, and they are going to rule and reign in their kingdom. And the power of the mind of God, this pattern of wisdom and of understanding, and of knowledge which made all things, and made it good, is going to be in perfect control of the problems of the earth. You can go into a grocery store and you will see cans all over the shelves. Big cans, little cans. So you don't pay any attention to the labels because they were all the same. You say, oh, Dr. Swift, we have to pay attention to the label so we will know what is on the inside. Well, you better pay attention to the label on the race as well. Because this Adamic white race are the children of the spirit of the Most High God. And the Most High God has declared that the Adamites are the household of his spirit. First Peter. Here Peter says, Ye are a royal household, a chosen people, a chosen nation. Therefore, under these policies, you are lively stones built up into a spiritual house unto the Most High God. Swift was evidently paraphrasing, but Peter did use a term which explicitly means race in that passage. I was sort of surprised that Swift had missed it. Now, returning to Swift, he begins to refer to some esoteric, apocryphal writings. And if I had to guess, his source was probably the Kabbalah. When I say apocryphal, I don't mean it in the sense that they belong in the King James Apocrypha. The word Apocrypha simply means covered or hidden, something which isn't known to the general public. Now, go back to the writings of Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, and we read, The Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in its wings, That definitely is an allegory using the description of the ancient phoenix as its model. There's no doubt. That doesn't mean that God is a phoenix or that Christ is a phoenix. But he also cites that in the New Testament, which I will discuss a little later. The light of consciousness, wisdom, and intelligence is the light of the person in the presence of the Most High God. The winged orb has been a mark on your race for many, many ages. It was one of the symbols carried by Enoch and Job. Now, I think that is not true, of course, and Job didn't date to the early period that Swift thought he did. It was one of the symbols carried by Enoch and Job, carried by many of your great forebears. It was the cartouche mark of Joseph. The symbol is found in Egypt, but we can't say that Joseph actually used it. We can't say that. There's no proof. It was the cartouche mark of Joseph when he was one of the leaders of Israel of Egypt. That language is a little difficult, and Wesley Swift was difficult to transcribe. It, this son of righteousness, the winged orb, was used everywhere the Aryans went, for they carried it with them. You find it up in the Scandinavian country, for they had the winged orb. And in the Anglo-Saxon lands you find the winged orb, as well as in Germany, and even way back in Druidry. Another thing that we really can't possibly be certain about. The sun of righteousness rises with healing in its wings. Menetho. Now, the original transcription of this had menthos, but I know that is wrong. There is no menthos, except maybe in the candy aisle at Walmart. Menetho was the historian whom Swift is referring to here. Manetho was the pagan writer-historian in ancient Egypt, who worshipped Set and Soth, which is Satan, and the gods of darkness were very angry, because, he said, the Khufus, or pharaohs, of his land had been influenced by the white race who built this great temple and altar down in the land of Egypt. And he said that even Pharaoh had been converted by the light which came out of these children who are the children of Osiris and the Ka of Ra. Ra being the Egyptian sun god and Ka was, as I understand it, roughly the Egyptian equivalent of what we call the spirit. Here Swift seems not to have gotten any of this directly from the writings or fragments which are dis- ascribed, I should say, which are ascribed to Manetho himself, as none of this is found in the publication of those writings. First published by the Loeb Classical Library in 1940. And I have a copy of that on my desk at the moment. I was perusing it for quite some time this afternoon, looking for what Swift could possibly have been referring to, and I can't find it. Now, there are some longer stories that he may have really been stretching to fit his paradigm, but no. I can't find it. I will not comment on it except to say that Manetho was called, Manetho had called the Hebrews shepherds. He didn't call them Hebrews. He called them shepherds. And seems to have confused them with the Hyksos invaders. And while he wrongly described Moses as a shepherd and a former priest of Osiris at Heliopolis, He never would have said that the Hebrews were children of Osiris, as Osiris was a native Egyptian sky god, who was later identified with the sun, but who had become the god of the underworld and of the dead after he had been dismembered by his brother Set. At a glance, the shepherds were credited by Medepho with destroying and pillaging temples, but, as far as I could find, not with having built them. This is why I believe Swift's source was the Kabbalah, or some other esoteric book with fantastic second- or third-hand accounts. Finally, Menetho would never have used the term white race, especially since the Egyptians' themselves were originally white. Originally, there was an infusion of Negro blood into Egypt. So apparently Swift had also innovated here. Swift is actually even claiming Egyptian religion for the Israelites, which is something else that Manetho did not do, not at all. Now we shall continue with Swift, where, in my opinion, he innovates even further. Now, Ka means soul, which is fine. And Ra means god of light. He was actually the sun god. He was later called Amun-Ra. Amun-Ra, and by other names. And understanding. Ra means God of Light and Understanding. And Osiris is Lord of Life and the Resurrection. Which is simply not really true. Actually, he was Lord of the Underworld and the Dead. And I don't believe the Egyptians ever had any promise of Resurrection. So they believed in Set and Saf and called you an ignoble people. He's referring to what the Egyptians had called the Hebrews. And that part is true. Always the powers of darkness have called you an ignoble people. But the pattern remains that you are even acknowledged by the patterns of the ancients as the children of light. Even Horus, the original prophet of ancient Egypt, the the prophet of the people who migrated from the sinking continent of Atlantis and from the ancient temple there, said that God had promised that one day he would place his children in bodies of flesh and they would be the children of light and that their spiritual entity would be the very light and power of his own spirit. They would be spirit of his spirit, light of his light. And wow, I could probably write another whole podcast exposing that as sheer sophistry and actually stupidity. Here Swift is once again attempting to syncretize pagan fables with scripture, and he is actually twisting the fables to try to make them fit into scripture. None of this originates in any ancient Egyptian literature. In fact, Atlantis is not mentioned until Plato invented it in the fourth century BC. Horus was the son of Osiris and Isis. The third idol in the pagan Egyptian trinity. Fables relating to him, fables which relate Horus to Christ arose among 19th century New Age pagans and should not be credited. Although here, Swift seems to be following them. And I believe that he is. He's not following anything ancient. He's following these 19th century New Age pagan clowns. That's who he's following. I would bet I would find the books in his library if I had it. Returning to Swift, for now he returns the Scripture. Thus we turn back to the book of 1 Corinthians again, to the second chapter, and we cite to you that by the light of his Spirit, he brings unto our attention the knowledge of the wisdom of all the things which are in the mind of God. The natural man cannot understand these things, but we of the Spirit can understand Because we have the spirit which is of God and the mind which is of Christ, the embodiment of God. As I have already said, we have the mind of Christ because we have his word in the gospel through which we can also understand the word of God in the Old Testament. Paul explained in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that there was a veil over the writings of Moses which could not be understood without Christ. And therefore, only Christians, people who have that mind of Christ in the gospel, can properly understand the entire Bible. Continuing with Swift, One of the strange things I heard from a minister the other day, who is continuing in the same pattern which I have heard for so many years, he's talking about standard Judeo-tard pastors, is that they must destroy the powers which would destroy them. This is, of course, the same old idea, that if you have an aversion to something or someone, then you must learn to accept it, or accept them, and not be against anything. You have to learn to love anything and everybody. And this then will cause a great transition in their minds. And they will be triumphant in all this, and will then like everybody. And this will be a great program for the development of the church and the world, and of all things. Now, when Yahweh talks about the light of Christ in your now the original here said face but it may have originally said race he is talking about the light of the Spirit which is the aura which comes off of all people you may not see this aura but it is there now if you said race he must have said face, because it comes off of all people. But originally, when he referred to this, he he led us to, to believe that he understood that it was only our race which had that light of Christ. You may not see this aura, but it is there. By face, if that is what he meant. Swift seems to be alluding to the words of Christ where he said, as it is in Matthew chapter 6, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. For my part, I do not think Christ was referring to a literal light, but only to the fact that the eye guides the body because you can't see without light and if the eye is true or sincere which is the true meaning of that word translated as single then the whole body will be light continuing with Swift he continues his fascination with wanting to explain supposed mysteries It has a wavelength of energy from those who are quite illuminated because of their knowledge of the wisdom of God and because they have translated the concepts of spiritual truths into their mental concepts and it is a part of their life. Others do not spend much time as they should in this pattern of communion and worship. The more a person becomes aware of the mind of God, And the knowledge of God, the brighter that aura shines. That is one of the reasons you are told not to leave off the assembling of yourselves together because you catalyze this spirit of this power of spiritual emanation. So as we point this out to you, we also call to your attention the words of Jesus. If I be lifted up, I draw all men unto me. Now this human, once again it's hyphenated, spirit men and all Adamites, and this is those that came from the spirit, and they did come to Christ, but the Asiatic or Negroes did not all come. In other words, he's insinuating that some of them came. Only the white men, Adamites, have come to him, all come. It suffices us to state here, that only white men are invited to come. Continuing with Swift, now, and we're almost done, not quite, another two pages, maybe. Now, I want to point this out to you again. You may be drawn to some people and turned away from others. There may be a deep affinity between you and Christian people everywhere because they have the same concepts of the knowledge of the worship of God, but they do not have the same concepts as the pagans of the world or the Jews who are of their father the devil. Jesus said, you are of your father the devil and the lusts of your father you will do. But this minister I was mentioning would have you turn away from one of the great gifts of the Spirit which is this gift of discernment. This gift is a strange understanding, a know-how, which dawns upon your countenance, which you do not have anything to do with, and you do not permit any areas of power, or anything which relates to the structure of administration, education, or government, to fall into the hands of the enemies of God. And, wow, was swift wrong there. But that's okay. I'll address that later. Through your program of the kingdom, which God, by the power of his Spirit, and by the light of his illumination, has already given you, as well as the gift of the Spirit, which has been given you as an internal sense to avoid this very thing. We tell you that the power of the light of God and the power of the aura of God which shines forth upon the countenance of God's children, is going to be one of the most remarkable conditions the world has yet to see. Arise and shine, thy light is come, and the glory of God has risen upon thee. God, who has shined in darkness, has shined in your heart, and the glory of Yahweh, which was upon the face of Christ, and this also comes out of the countenance of the children of God and out of the background of their spiritual communion. For you are spirit of his spirit, light of his light, and life of his life, children of the most high. And God, who created the heavens and the earth, has ordained the success of his kingdom that righteousness shall triumph and the overthrowing of the darkness will take place. Apparently, Swift was quite optimistic, in spite of the fact that the devils, the Jews, had already controlled all of the areas of administration of the federal government and other world governments through their control of the banking system and the people of the West, or Christendom, would be punished to a much greater degree than Swift could have possibly imagined. Because he didn't imagine it. Here he actually thought that Christians would not leave their governments to Jews and other races. Look at us now. For now, we will continue with him. As he explains things that he had already been, that had already been done in his time, but which would get much, much worse after he died. And in 1970, I was only nine years old. And the world where I lived had already turned into a riot zone several times. The enemy then comes in and seeks by the patterns of darkness to capture the mind of a society, and even to destroy testimony of a church, to place the church at the disposal of all people, without any identity of your Father, and thus to take over your society. He wants you, not as an independent nation, not as a great nation, but subordinate to His power in the patterns of darkness. Speaking of the Jew, of course. This was already done by this time, by his time, but now he offers a prayer. So therefore, let the light shine. Let the aura come forth. Let the power of righteousness and discernment function. Let the children of God be as discerning as their father. And therefore, look at the label on the can. Look at the background of the race. And remember what God has called. Remember that God has ordained that you are to take possession of the kingdom of the Most High. The saints are going to take the kingdom and rule over the kingdom forever and forever. This is not only the declaration in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, and in other places in scripture, but it is the prophecies of the Most High God. So we look out over these facets of truth and see that he is the light of the life of men. He is the winged orb of the majesty of greatness which shines out over the heart of his people and he shall come with righteousness in his wings. I think it actually said healing in his wings, but that's okay. It is true that Christ prophesied. Christ is prophesied in those words of Malachi. And in a play on words that only works in English and not in Greek, we read in Matthew chapter five his admonition that ye may be children of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. But we have salvation in the sun, S-O-N, and not in the sun, S-U-N. Continuing with Swift. And so, as we turn to these patterns of darkness working in our midst, we must recognize that the Enosh people are not the offspring of the Most High God. Now, that's fine, but then he screws it up here. They are created people, and they were created good, and they were good, until the hours of deception of the archangel Lucifer. And it is not true that the other races were created by Yahweh, and therefore they are not mentioned in the account in Genesis chapter 1. While Yahweh created all things he did not create the corruptions which have resulted from the sins of angels or men and therefore all the goat nations had their destiny in the very same fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels likewise we see in the parable of the net that the net is dragged in the ocean and pulls up every kind of fish and there are only two kinds a good kind which is put in the vessels and preserved and a bad kind and if yahweh created everything good where did the bad fish where did they come from the bad fish are not placed back into the sea Just like the goat nations, the bad fish are burned in the fire. And not for eating. They're burned in the fire for his destruction. Those fish represent people. Once again, continuing with Swift, he explains why they all walk in darkness. They lack the spiritual capacities of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding which God has bestowed upon your race, and which he has promised to bring forth with absolute victory. Thus all flesh shall be saved through the work of the children of God. No, all flesh of the children of God shall be saved through the work of God. He said, All Israel shall be saved, and I shall take away all the ungodliness of the house of Jacob. And we pray, O Yahweh, do this quickly, for we would like to get rid of the ungodliness in leadership in our nation. We would like to see the powers of righteousness reign. We would like to see the forces of truth move into power in this nation. But God has promised this, and it will transpire. And actually, we will see tremendous conditions in the near future when Michael, the great archangel, is going to have to defend us in a most unique way. Here's Swift is interpreting Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. But we will reserve comments so that we may finish his sermon. I shall only state that In the end of the Revelation, the enemies are not destroyed by Michael, but at the return of Christ himself with the armies of heaven, and the fire which descends out of heaven. In Revelation chapters 19 and 20, Christ is not Michael. That is a huge mistake. Examining the text of Daniel, Michael is only one of the chief Angels, one of at least several archangels, and that's how he is described in Daniel. Jesus Christ is God, he's not an archangel. Michael means who is like God, nobody is like God. That's the only appropriate answer, Michael. I have nothing. Bad to say about Michael. However, Michael is not going to save us. Only Christ is going to save us. No man and no angel. Although plenty of men and angel may be employed by God for the purpose of his salvation. And that is fine. Swift now concludes his sermon and he says, We will have to have a quick arising among the children of the spirit against communism, socialism, which desires to liquidate and to destroy you from the face of the earth. So as we look into the sky and see their satellites passing overhead and realizing that they have nuclear warheads, here we go, we again tell our leaders that they better wake up because it is much later than they think. Thus, as we say these things, again we say, Arise and shine, thy light has come, and the glory of God is risen upon thee. And we should fear the enemies here in our congregations. The enemies. thou enemies roar in thy congregations. Much more than we should fear satellites flying up in the sky, or nuclear warheads. It certainly won't arise, that light, certainly won't arise on any so-called Enosh people. Ignoring the chapter division, three verses, I'm sorry, four verses, ending Isaiah chapter 59 and beginning Isaiah chapter 60, read thus, because the chapter divisions often take us out of the context in which the verses were written. So, from Isaiah chapter 59, verse 20, And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith Yahweh. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith Yahweh. My spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in my mouth, shall not depart out of my mouth, Out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith Yahweh, from henceforth and for ever. Arise, shine, for thy light is come. Those words are his light. And the glory of Yahweh is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But Yahweh shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, only the children of Israel. In hindsight, I think Swift's sermon may have been better if he had stayed closer to the topic of treasure in earthen vessels, and left the pagan mysticism to collect dust in the bowels of hell. That's where it belongs. His overall sense is good. We, being children of God, if indeed we are of the children of Israel, have eternal life granted to us, guaranteed to us by the God of the Scriptures. All Israel will be saved. We should be focused not on our loved ones and our loved ones who had passed, even Christ had said that the man must put his hand to the plow and not look back. And that same Christ also said that he who perseveres to the end shall be saved. We all lose friends and wives and brothers and sisters and children and it's a horrible thing to lose especially a child as well as a wife a wife of a very long time but we can't look back we have to know that our life our wife our brother our son our sister is with God and they're fine and we have a task at hand that we need to complete That's how we know that we have that treasure in earthen vessels. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and not the God of any <laughs> Enosh people. And good night.